Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie and Arthur White with Michigan Opera Theater. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we preview Tchaikovsky's opera Eugene Onegin about squandered romance and tragic honor. This production marks the opening of Michigan Opera Theater's 48th consecutive season, and we are thankful to Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing our Opera Here podcasts. In today's podcast, we'll tell you about the story of Eugene Onegin, give you a bit about its history, and we'll be joined by one of the principal characters in the stage production. It's been nearly 20 years since Michigan Opera Theater has mounted a production of this opera. Arthur, what can we expect from Eugene Onegin? Tchaikovsky has given us an action-packed opera with wonderful tunes, dances, a heartbreaking duel, and a very dramatic ending. And we are excited to be able to bring you a preview of this production as it prepares to debut at the Detroit Opera House on October 13th, where it runs through October 21st. Tchaikovsky wrote Eugene Onegin, based off Alexander Pushkin's novel in verse of the same name, debuting his opera in Moscow in 1879. The story surrounds a man from St. Petersburg who lived in the early 19th century. Modern-day audiences might see character similarities between the 19th century Eugene Onegin and the 21st century Kim Kardashian. Like Kardashian, Eugene Onegin is wickedly good-looking and filthy rich. He spends his time going to parties, concerts, and dinners. His only work is to ensure that when he is seen in public, he is dressed to the nines in the latest and greatest fashions. Eugene Onegin is invited to a country estate by his poet friend Lenski, where he introduces his fiancée Olga to Onegin. But it's Olga's older sister Tatiana who immediately falls in love with Onegin. She stays up all night in her room writing a passionate letter to him, where she pours out her heart saying once she laid eyes on him, she knew he was the one, the man she would spend the rest of her life with. Onegin arrives to answer Tatiana's letter in person. He is flattered by her words and is attracted to her, but he sees Tatiana as a country bumpkin, not able to fit easily into his sophisticated and worldly existence. He offers her only brotherly affection as Act 1 closes. Act 2 opens with a ball being thrown for Tatiana, who is celebrating her name day. Onegin has reluctantly agreed to accompany Lenski to what he mistakenly believes will be an intimate family celebration. Annoyed and bored by the occasion, Onegin takes his revenge on Lenski by flirting and dancing with his fiancée, Olga. Soon, Lenski becomes extremely jealous, renounces his friendship with Onegin, and challenges him to a duel. Tatiana faints at the sight as the party breaks up. The next morning, just before daybreak, Lenski meditates upon his poetry, his love for Olga, and upon death. Onegin, having overslept, arrives late to the duel. 
Although both Lenski and Onegin are full of remorse, their pride and honor prevent them from calling off the duel, and Lenski is killed at the hand of his former best friend. Act 3 opens in St. Petersburg five years later, during which time Onegin has traveled throughout Europe following Lenski's death. He arrives at a ball being thrown at the palace of Prince Gremen, and he reflects on the emptiness of his life and regret over Lenski's death. When the prince and his wife enter, Onegin is shocked to see his wife is Tatiana. He is taken aback by her beauty and regal bearing and is overcome with emotion, realizing he is in love with her. Onegin writes a letter to Tatiana, asking her to meet him. Tatiana receives the letter from Onegin, which conjures up old memories and passions within her. Onegin wants her to run away with him, and Tatiana admits she still loves him. This declaration is music to Onegin's ears, but Tatiana will remain faithful to her husband in spite of her feelings. She bids him farewell forever, leaving him alone and in despair. Andrea, tell us a little bit about the history of uh, Eugene Onegin. Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin is beautiful and brilliant, but I think as you already mentioned, Arthur, the opera is adapted from just an absolute classic of Russian literature by Alexander Pushkin. Pushkin is a legendary figure in both Russian history and in the literary world, and so is Tchaikovsky in the musical world. So with Eugene Onegin, you have this really exciting meeting of two masters and how their work converges together. The novel Eugene Onegin was beloved in Russia after its publication. I read somewhere that any educated Russian could recite long passages of the novel from memory. So clearly it was deeply ingrained in the cultural consciousness. And it was so much a part of the life and the vocabulary of Russia that Tchaikovsky was initially very hesitant to adapt it into an opera. Um, it was so well known and so well loved, I think, that he just didn't, um, you know, he was nervous about what the product could be and how it would be received. And he didn't even call it an opera initially. Um, he referred to the work as lyrical scenes in three acts. So clearly this adaptation was a bit of a daunting task. And rightfully so. In his time and after, Pushkin was seen as Russia's national poet. You could compare his status to Shakespeare or to Byron in English literature. Um, he was revered as the father of modern Russian literature. Pushkin's central masterpiece, Onegin, took him seven years to write. And not only is the piece written in verse, which is uh, a difficult enough task and impressive enough on its own, but Pushkin invented a new poetic form to write in. It was called the Pushkin sonnet or sometimes called the Onegin verse. And it was this new form of poetry that was uh, iambic tetrameter for anyone who is a, a poetry fan out there. And it alternated one and two syllable rhyme schemes throughout. And so the whole book is written in this um, form. And actually Tchaikovsky took most of his libretto directly from Pushkin's novel. There wasn't a whole lot that was changed um, for the libretto of the opera. So again, I think to compare Pushkin to Shakespeare really isn't overstating things. Uh, Shakespeare told these epic, unforgettable stories, and he invented words, and he played with form, and clearly Pushkin did the same. So in a case of life imitating art, Pushkin, like Lenski in the story, 
actually dies in a duel. So tell us about that. That's right. Yeah, the, the famous duel. Um, Pushkin actually was involved in in many duels throughout his life. It was not just the one duel that wound up taking his life. It is believed that he challenged people to duels 20 different times. He made 20 challenges to duels and he received seven challenges himself to defend honor or to right a wrong. Um, so throughout his life, that that's quite a bit of dueling, although not all of them came to fruition. Um, he had friends who helped to smooth over the situation before pistols were drawn. If anyone out there is a fan of the musical Hamilton, you know that they're following the ten dual commandments and demanding satisfaction, as those lyrics go. But eventually, his propensity to challenge people to duels uh, got him into trouble, proved fatal. And his final duel was really centered on his wife, Natalia. Pushkin's wife, Natalia, was beautiful and lovely, uh, you know, really loved and admired at court. I've read that the Tsar himself was interested in Natalia, although Pushkin couldn't really challenge the Tsar to a duel. But one person who pursued Natalia relentlessly over the years was a French royalist. And Pushkin eventually did challenge him. And as we know, uh, it had tragic results. Interestingly, in spite of how often Pushkin tended to set these challenges, dueling in Russia had been prohibited by Peter the Great, and so duels often took place in secret. Pushkin's second, or his attendant, at his fatal duel was imprisoned for two months after his death just for taking part, and Pushkin's killer was actually exiled from Russia eventually. In the opera, we don't really see that. Um, Onegin is not sent away in any kind of punishment, but he does send himself into kind of a self-exile. And he travels the world after he kills his friend, and he's really haunted by that as the years pass. Yeah, there's a beautiful musical moment at the top of the third act where Onegin acknowledges this truth. He never really escaped from what he's done by taking the life of his friend. Like all the music in this opera, it just sets up the scene so perfectly. Yeah, that the ending is so powerful. So tell us a little bit about this music in Onegin. Arthur. I think for myself and for so many of us, we know Tchaikovsky through his compositions for the ballet. So yeah. we know Nutcracker, we know Swan Lake. Um, what can we expect musically from this opera? Well, Tchaikovsky's music here is beautiful. It's melodic. It's lush. Uh, but the vocal writing is certainly different from, say, other composers like Verdi or Puccini. Tchaikovsky leads with the orchestra. The voice is a part of a larger tapestry in his writing. But of course, in his opera, Tchaikovsky had to have some dance. And so he does offer us a lovely Polonaise, uh, which is a dance of Polish origin and 3-4 time that was uh, introduced in the French courts of the 17th century. Andrew, you know, as a young man, I really struggled with this opera because I didn't like Onegin the person, this sort of, you know, bad boy anti-hero. Uh, but then again, I liked other bad boys like Don Giovanni. You know, why did, Why is that? <laughs> you know, for me, I, I think that's such a good question. For me, uh, the bad boys, they have passion. And there's something really alluring about that, for better or for worse. But Eugene Onegin has nothing that he's passionate about. He feels like everything is boring, he's seen it all, and he's just really cynical and, and fed up with life. Uh, in one English translation of the libretto, Onegin sings, The brilliance and bustle of society cannot dispel my constant world weariness. I found nothing to which I could devote myself. 
So clearly you have this very jaded character who's remote and disconnected, not only from the other characters in the opera, but also from us as the audience. Yeah, that's the brilliance of uh, Pushkin and Tchaikovsky's writing here. They keep uh, Eugene Onegin aloof, cold, and detached. And so it's really, really reflected in the music, his music, of Act 1 and 2. But he saves all of the love and passion for Onegin in that third act, uh, which makes his music and his character so powerful when it's unleashed. That final duet, which is excruciating to watch and listen to, always brings a tear to the eye. Yeah, the the ending of this opera is so powerful. And we have some phenomenal performers who will be here in Detroit uh, bringing Eugene Onegin to life. Arthur, uh, what can you tell us about the singers that we'll be hearing in Onegin? Well, the production is conducted by Michigan Opera Theater principal conductor Stephen Lord. Now, Ukrainian baritone Yuri Smoylov makes his U.S. debut in this production of Onegin. He's a member of the Frankfurt Opera, where he recently appeared as Papageno and Count Almaviva in Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. Now, American soprano Corinne Winters assumes the role of Tatiana. Now, audiences may remember her last appearance with Michigan Opera Theater as Violetta in Verdi's La Traviata. That's in the 13-14 uh, season. And I am pleased to welcome our Tatiana, Corinne Winters, who is on the line from London, where she's appearing in a performance of the Verdi Requiem. Thank you, Corinne, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We are uh, accustomed to hearing often opera in Italian, French, and German. Have you sung in Russian before? Yes. Uh, the first time I sang in Russian was during my time at the Academy of Vocal Arts. It's a postgraduate apprentice program that I did in Philadelphia for four years, and we had a resident Russian coach, uh, which was amazing because we did either a Russian arias or a Russian songs program every year. And through that, I learned to read Cyrillic, although I don't truthfully speak Russian, but I can read the Cyrillic, and um, I have learned enough of the language to know the parts of speech and to know the general gist of what's going on, and I can, you know, use a translation to fill in the blanks. I've also sung the role of Tatiana once at Arizona Opera in 2015. Oh, very good. Wow. Corinne, Arthur and I have talked a little bit about uh, the character of Onegin and how he is this cold, detached character throughout most of the opera. What does Tatiana see in Onegin in the first act? What sparks that initial connection? I think what she sees in him is how serious he is, and but in a different way than Lenski. Because a, a lot of people have said, including myself at certain points, that it's funny that Lenski and Tatiana don't end up together because he's the poet, you know, he's into words and she's into books. And, you know, it, it would make sense that they would sort of end up together. Right. Um, but... Onegin is more grown up in the way that he is. He engages her in conversation and he's polite, but he's also removed. He's got an air of mystery about him. And I think he resembles a lot of the sort of heroes that she's read about in, in literature and, you know, the, the fairy tales, basically her version of a Jane Austen novel that she's been reading. I think he fits the bill, you know, this presumably handsome, educated, somewhat mysterious, but also sort of noble guy that comes on the scene and she's like that's it that's the one i've been reading about right he's a little mr darcy right exactly (laughs) (laughs) exactly corinne what challenges would you say the letter scene present that scene is almost 12 minutes long what are some of the things that you are you know thinking about and dealing with while you're doing that fantastic scene uh the big conundrum of the letter scene is the differentiation between the writing the actual letter and then reflecting on what I've written or what I 
hope or don't hope will happen by giving him the letter, which, of course, is a reflection that happens later on in the scene. Those are interesting moments to sort of put in quotes, because when you're writing, it has to feel to the audience like it's the stream of consciousness thing that's sort of coming out of her. But then there are moments where she's going, oh, my God, what have I just done? And a couple of times she stops and starts the letter, doesn't she? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And because of that stopping and starting, of course, in the staging, you know, they'll, they'll see me writing and not writing. But it is important, especially for the people in the back of the hall, you know, to really get those vocal colors because they won't be able to see my face that close. They'll see my body language, but that's probably it. So, yeah, that's that's usually what I try to really bring across. And also the range of dynamics and vocal colors and inflections, because there are points where she's speaking poetically maybe even quoting sort of things from books um, because the language that Pushkin uses in the original text is so, so lush and so grown up for a girl of 15 or whatever, however old she is. But then she has these exclamations that come out of nowhere that really need to sort of pop. Uh, And then moments where she's reflecting and they need to be more inward. And all of those colors just change line by line and uh, they need the right attention to really come through. Tatiana has such an incredible journey between that letter scene through the end of the opera, um, particularly between acts two and three. There's three full years between the action um, in act two Mm -hmm. and three. What changes can you tell us about that Tatiana goes through during that time period? I actually think everything she went through with Onyegin in the beginning of the opera makes her grow up. It makes her realize what she actually needs versus maybe what she wants or, or what her sort of childhood dreams were. Um, It's sort of where she goes from adolescence to sort of adulthood, young adulthood. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. We have these sort of pivotal moments where we're like, oh, I'm getting a taste of what it's like to be a grown up. And, um, you know, she probably thought that she would write this letter and maybe he would, you know, take time to respond. But but I think she was really holding out hope that he was going to be this knight in shining armor that she'd read about. And then when he says in his aria, the sort of stinging line, the one that really gets me is, you know, I, I care for you like in a way that a brother does. And and to a woman who's, or a girl who's in love with someone, that is kind of the worst thing you could say. Mm. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, while he's somewhat kind and he's polite about his response, he also has a few cutting lines that really, that really, really get to her. And I think she realizes, you know, I need a man who's going to be there for me at the end of the day. I need someone who's really going to appreciate me for who I am. And, of course, she doesn't realize that in the moment that Onyegin is uh, responding to her letter. But years later, when she's with Gremin and she's clearly grown up, I think what has happened is that over time she's realized, you know, I just need someone steady. I need someone honest and noble. And that's what I'm going to go for. That's her evolution. Corinne, why do you suppose Tatiana agrees to meet Onyegin in the third act after she sort of realized I want something a little more consistent, more steady, but she agrees to meet him? I think it's pure curiosity. It's that she never fully got over him, but she knows that he's bad for her. I think she just, you know, we all do things that we know really aren't good for us and that we really, we don't want to do with our conscious minds, but our subconscious and our sort of deep desires are stronger than our conscious minds in that moment. And um, I think she just succumbed to that. And I also think she wanted a moment to chastise him because the first part of the duet is her chastising him and saying, you know, how dare you? And 
I think she needed that. She needed to be the strong woman that could then really say what she wanted to say back then, but was too shy or too immature or not self-confident enough to say. And so she got her chance. But then, of course, she spends a few minutes looking into his eyes and she hears what he says and she realizes, well, I don't think she realizes. She admits, of course, yes, I still love you, but I've committed my life to this man. That's it. So I think that's why she agrees to see him. Corinne, I was going to ask, you know, this is such a beautiful opera and, of course, a role you've sung already before. What excites you about returning to this role and uh, taking on Tatiana one more time? Oh, my gosh. Well, this is my favorite role. And you'll probably see that on social media because I post about it often. But I actually come from Russian heritage, but I, I didn't get to keep my family's last name, which was Benitsky. And they changed it to Winters when my great-grandparents came over um, through Ellis Island because they were Jews and there were a lot of things going on there. But I do come from that lineage and I, I know it sounds crazy, but when I sing in Russian, I just it feels like the most natural thing in the world. I absolutely love it. I love the story. I'm a bookworm myself and I'm a romantic and I really connect to Tatiana's personality and struggle. But also um, Maestro Stephen Lord is a mentor of mine and really the first person to go out on a limb for me in my career and um, and one of my sort of muses in this business. And uh, whenever we work together, there's, there's magic that happens. So I'm just excited to recreate this role with him. Well, every bit of that gave me chills. Thank you so much for sharing. <laughs> of course. Thanks. Well, Corinne Winters, thank you so much for taking this time to speak with us. We are very much looking forward to seeing you here in Detroit. Oh, thank you so much. I can't wait to get there. Before we leave for today, we want to recognize the life and legacy of our wonderful, loved founder, Dr. David DiChiara. Dr. D's vision, energy, inspiration is the reason that we're here, is the reason that there is opera in Detroit. And we're so indebted to, to his work and to his legacy and for all that he's done for MOT and for the city of Detroit. Yeah, you know, I met Dr. D back in uh, 2010. Uh, and we became friends. And after a while, um, he offered me a job to come work at Michigan Opera Theater as uh, an audience engagement coordinator. And I can tell you, it was the best. It has been the best job I have ever had. And uh, the time flew so quickly and everything I learned from him, uh, I took on to my next position when I when I moved away uh, to Shanghai. So many of the lessons and so many of the values that I learned from MOT, I was able to to really exercise at my time in Shanghai. And so uh, I just uh, just can't believe he's gone. It's just uh, just so hard to believe. But he, uh, he will leave a hole. His influence on the musical life of this city will be felt for decades to come. Thank you to everyone listening today to our glimpse into Eugene Onyegin. We hope we see you at the Detroit Opera House to catch this gorgeous production opening October 13th and running through October 21st. Also, don't forget to mark your calendars for Saturday, September 29th, as Michigan Opera Theater officially opens its 48th season with one of the most beloved and celebrated singers of our time, soprano Renee Fleming. Direct from her acclaimed performance on Broadway and Carousel, she teams up with the Michigan Opera Theater Orchestra, conducted by principal conductor Stephen Lord, for an unforgettable gala evening. The evening will also include a special appearance by Victoria Yayani and Dylan Gutierrez of Chicago's renowned Joffrey Ballet, performing a pas de deux from Swan Lake. To purchase tickets to see Renee Fleming, Eugene Onegin, or to find more information on MOT season celebrating literary masterworks, visit our website at michiganopera.org. 
You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again to Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing this podcast, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.